Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Beyond the Yates Paradigm, the study of Western esotericism between counterculture and new complexity by Dr. Walter J. Hanegraaff. I know this is uh, the third I've done of Hanegraaff's in the last... 60 days, but that is because he's a major player and uh, the head of the Department of Hermeticism at the University of Amsterdam, where you can get a master's or a PhD in Hermeticism, Western Esotericism. It was a similar program. It is a similar program to the one I was in for my doctorate at the University of Exeter with Nicholas Goodrich Clark until he died. And they are all children of the still existing department at the Sorbonne in Paris, um, founded by Secret and continued by his protege, Antoine Fevre, you can uh, still find it fairly active, I believe, though originally it was called the Department of Christian Hermeticism, and now it's just uh, esotericism, I believe. But everything academically is done very differently in France, especially at the Sorbonne. This is an important very important essay and study of the seminal ones I consider that Hanegraaff did, the other one being on the role of Orientalism versus Hermeticism in the Renaissance. But this looks at Frances A. Yates' studies and her work done through the Warburg Institute. So this is not W.B. Yates, but Frances A. Yates. Their both names are pronounced the same, but spelled differently. Both Yates, neither Yeats. Enjoy. 1. Two revolutions. Note, this article is a strongly revised version of a paper presented at Reed College, Portland, Oregon, on April 5th, 2000. And Hanegraaff would like to thank Antoine Fevre, who I actually coincidentally mentioned, Hans Thomas Hackel, and Olaf Hammer for their critical comments on earlier versions. Um, also, you should see uh, Fevre and Voss, that's Dr. Angela Voss, whose program I presented at last year at University of Canterbury, Western Esotericism and the Science of Religions. Also, Fevre Avant Propos, Hanograph Introduction, some remarks, and a few other essays that are relevant to 
the initial point, which is that the study of Western esotericism finds itself in the middle of a process of academic professionalization and institutionalization. Before addressing some problems connected with this development and as an introduction to them, I would like to draw a parallel which may seem surprising at first sight. It is well known that the turbulent period of the 1960s produced, among many other things, the so-called sexual revolution, a complex social phenomenon with wide-ranging effects including the emergence of the academic study of sexuality and sex-related problems in the context of new disciplines such as gender studies. While this revolution has not led to the sexually liberated culture once predicted by its defenders, it did succeed in breaking the social taboo on sex as a subject of discussion in the academy and in society as a whole. New disciplines such as gender studies have flourished since the 1960s, and there can be no doubt that any attempt to curtail or suppress scholarly discussion and research related to sexuality would nowadays be rejected by academics as an unacceptable infringement on intellectual freedom. That's an interesting, uh, Honograph is opening with a parallel point, so I think it's interesting to contrast this with another parallel point relevant to popular discussion today, which is um, conspiracy theories, which have become more plausible than the reality we find ourselves in. A lot of people are saying, if someone had told you a year ago that would all of this happen today, a lot of people are saying no. A lot of other people are saying yeah. And anyone who's really paid attention to the world would... Uh, I mean, I've been being told about a virus being accidentally released from a lab, or intentionally, and causing <laughs> the global scale, the face of the global world to change for some time. Um, that has always been something I've been very aware could easily happen, and the fact that it's happened is not all that surprising because we were aware it could very well happen. And on that point, I'm talking not only about viruses or pandemics, but also the stuff with concentration camps in China and gender studies departments using critical theory to cause a, a global hysteria um, <laughs> that I'll uh, leave it to others to keep talking about. Go check out Dark Horse Podcast. Leave it to the biologists to discuss what went wrong with gender studies. <laughs> oh man! And by what I and I mean something very, very specific by that in in, in terms of the appropriation of critical theory and, and post structuralist thought to do something it wasn't meant to do. Um, can you imagine? Yeah, anyway, I could say so much more. Anyway, I, this is the third of these I've done today, and I'm uh, just gonna can plow through it because this is a great paper. I've read this paper so many times. I love it. Parallel to the sexual revolution, the countercultural ferment of the 1960s produced a popular revolution of religious consciousness with widespread interest in Western esotericism of one, as one of its major manifestations. Note that the emergence of a new religio-consciousness since the 1960s, um, e.g. Glock and Bella, the new religious consciousness, is not synonymous with the emergence of a new popular esotericism for two reasons. Firstly, the former also includes a wide variety of new religious movements, as they call them, NRMs, and trends with no particular connection to Western esotericism. For example, many Christian evangelical NRMs, Eastern missionary movements, and so on. Secondly, the emergence of this popular new religious consciousness during the 1960s is 
essentially a social phenomenon, whereas contemporary Western esotericism, as one of its major subdomains, is primarily defined and set apart not by the nature of its social manifestations, but by the nature of its beliefs. It is only from the perspective of intellectual history that Western esotericism in general, including its contemporary manifestations in the social context of the new religious consciousness, can be demarcated as a specific domain in the history of religions, which obviously does not mean that social science theories and approaches cannot or should not be applied to it. For this, see a discussion in Honograph, Empirical Method. As will be seen, this development happened to coincide with the emergence of a new and thoroughly academic interest in the so-called Hermetic tradition of the Renaissance. This domain of research has long been neglected by historians due to its strong connections with magic and the occult in Western culture. Domains of human activity which were felt to be particularly unworthy of serious academic research. A classic example is George Sarton, Introduction to the History of Science. He says, The historian of science cannot devote much attention to the study of superstition and magic, that is, of unreason. Human folly being at once unprogressive, unchangeable, and unlimited, its study is a hopeless undertaking. Brilliant. To some extent, this attitude changed after the middle of the 1960s, but while the Hermetic tradition did gain some recognition as a domain of academic investigation, Scholarly attention remained limited essentially to early modern history and was dominated by research agendas concentrating on the relevance of Hermeticism to the history of science and philosophy. The study of Western esotericism generally, from the Renaissance to the present, and from a multidisciplinary perspective, including the study of religion and other disciplines in the humanities and social sciences, remained curiously neglected. Oh, we wouldn't want to neglect stuff like that. Note, in this article I will not address the delicate problem of the definition and demarcation of Western esotericism, but refer simply to the short description of currents in the colophon of this journal, which is Aries, I believe. The two revolutions of the 1960s and their related fields of research have more in common than one might think. Sex and the occult are both subjects invoking strong emotions and feelings of curiosity, and the secret attraction that they hold for many cannot be easily admitted in polite company. The social taboos on both domains have deep roots in dominant traditions of Christian theology, and the witchcraft persecutions of the 16th and 17th centuries furnish particularly clear examples of how closely sex and the occult could be linked in the Christian imagination. Yeah, we all know Christians love to imagine the occult, but of course they would never imagine sex. That would just be wrong. See uh, succinct discussions in chambers, sex and the paranormal. The connection has not remained limited to the imagination of outsiders. It was perhaps inevitable that not a few occultists in the wake of the Enlightenment would come to focus precisely on the combination of sex and magic in their efforts to develop alternatives to establish Christianity, <clears throat> Crowley, and uh, everyone else. They all did it. Barrage. Ah. This is a major theme in Godwin's groundbreaking Theosophical Enlightenment. Jocelyn Godwin is rad. 
I hope to have lunch with him again someday before he dies. Everyone I love seems to be dying, so I need to get, get back on it. In the gradual process of secularization since the 18th century, including the emancipation of scholarly research from the influence of theological doctrine, and that was a really good thing. Don't get me wrong on that one. As much as I love the queen of the sciences, spirituality and theology should not be the basis of her discovering science. The 1960s marked a decisive watershed. The moral and religious values of traditional Christianity came to be questioned and revised to a hitherto unprecedented extent, thus paving the way for the essentially secular consciousness of contemporary Europeans and Americans. Uh, contrary to the so-called secularization thesis, it has become ever more evident that contemporary secular consciousness is quite compatible with religious belief. On secularization as a process resulting in religious transformation and creative innovation, see Honograph's Defining Religion. For a de detailed discussion of New Age religion as based upon secularized esotericism, see his book New Age Religion, Part 3. It's the evening. I've been recording and doing stuff since 5 a.m., so it's 8 o'clock p.m. I'll be asleep in an hour, and I'm just going to get this done. I'm drinking. Yes, it's true. A little wine after a week of abstinence goes a long way. Hmm. Where were we? Let's have some fun with this one. In the gradual process of secularization since the 18th century, including the emancipation of scholarly research from the influence of theological doctrine, the 1960s marked a decisive watershed. I already did that. Fuck. Where the fuck am I? All right. As part of this process, the taboo on gender studies and other sex-related disciplines was successfully and permanently lifted. In contrast, the taboo on academic research of Western esotericism remained firmly in place throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Yeah, I totally edit out those sort of errors usually, but today I'm going to just roll with it. As far as academic recognition is concerned, the study of Western esotericism therefore made a false start during the 1960s. Oh, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? And in what follows, I will provide some suggestions about why this happened. My argument rests upon a distinction between three parallel but mutually interacting developments, which will be discussed one by one. Firstly, the religionist countercultural approach to religion associated with Iranos. You've heard me talk about that before. Secondly, the academic study of the Hermetic tradition in the wake of Francis Yates. And thirdly, the various mixtures of these two in popular perceptions of Hermeticism and Western esotericism since the 1960s. I will argue that the academic professionalization of the study of Western esotericism requires us to overcome the discipline's double religionist, countercultural, and Yatesian heritage in favor of a new post-Yatesian perspective. Remember, we're not talking about William. This is Francis. Three Currents of Thought, Part 2, Irenos, Religionism, and Counterculture. The first consistent attempts at breaking the academic taboo on Western esotericism as the subject of research were made in the countercultural climate of the 1960s. And the heritage of these projects is still with us. Martin Green has traced the roots of the counterculture back to Ascona in Switzerland before, before, before World War II. And his thesis is confirmed by recent studies such as Stephen 
Wasserstrom's Religion After Religion. That's actually a good book. Wasserstrom, Religion After Religion, should be noted that cult counterculturalism, as understood here and throughout this article, is not linked to any specific political orientation. Remember that these days, folks. It's not always been as it is today. Jesus. While the counterculture of the 1960s with its anti-bourgeois sentiments tended to be left-wing, Eranos participants tended to be politically conservative. Of course, who cares? Any magician... I have a hard time with mystics and magicians getting involved in politics. Maybe we should. Maybe we should do some Enochian work for the parts of the earth that need help, like where the concentration camps are in China. I don't know. Like I said, I'm going to have fun with this one, so I might say some shit. Definitely getting another explicit rating. Oh, well. When the famous Eranos meetings were first organized in Ascona in the fateful year of 1933, what could have happened after 1933? I have no idea. The town was already known for its bohemian atmosphere, strongly influenced by the Dionysianism of the cultural avant-garde. Note um, on Eranos, see also Holtz. Iranos, and we are awaiting the forthcoming monograph by Hans Thomas Hackel. Hackel's great. Not a hack. Totally. Just Hackel. <laughs> uh, while the founders of Iranos were not sympathetic to this particular perspective associated with Monte Verita, their own type of counterculturalism had clear connections to Graf Hermann Kaiserling's Schule der Weisheit, that would mean School of Wisdom, a forum rather similar to Iranos in inspiration and which had run in Darmstadt from 1920 to 1930. Yeah. Plus one additional meeting in Formentor in 1931. Jung met the organizer of Iranos, Olga Fröbe, at Kaiserling's Schule der Weisheit in 1930. Noel Jungkult, 94, says that many of his lecturers in Kaiserling's Schule also began to appear in the new venue of Iranos. Actually, the number remained limited to four. Leo Beck, Carl Gustav Jung, Aaron Roussel, and Gerardus van der Leuve. Fascinating. Iranos was never officially presented as the continuation of the Schule der Weisheit, but after it had become impossible for Kaiserling to continue his forum, Due to the National Socialist takeover, that's the Nazis, in case anyone forgets that Nazis come out of socialism, <laughs> takeover, the Aranos meetings in neutral Switzerland presented themselves as an obvious alternative. In his Reisetagebuch eines Philosophen, that's a, a, tra a day, day journal or travel journal uh, of philosophy, 1918, Kaiserling listed the contemporary currents which inspired his vision of the future of religion. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm not even stoned. Theo and Anthroposophy, so Theosophy and Anthroposophy, New Thought, Christian Science, the New Gnosis, Vivekananda's Vedantism, the Neo-Persian and Indo-Islamic esotericism, not to mention those of the Hindus and the Buddhists, the Baha'i system, I'm on, currently, actually, as I read this, I'm on the oldest Baha'i property in North America. It's the first place the Baha'i set up camp. Then the freeway ran through it. They sold it, and it was bought by Temple of Isis and Fellowship of Isis, where I'm currently at their retreat center. We have a shrine to the Baha'i here, and the places I've done the ritual work and the lessons last year, and 
everything else of the temples are all built by the Baha'i. The professed faith of the various spiritualistic and occultist circles, and even the Freemasons, all start from essentially the same basis, and their movements are certain to have a greater future than official Christianity. So this was the opinion of Kaiserling in Heise Tagebuch, page 140. But note that it is his positive evolution but note that his positive evolution does not keep Kaiserling from criticizing theosophy on the pages that follow. As is well known, an essentially similar mixture has continued to be characteristic of the international phenomenon of popular youngism, based upon the work and inspiration of the great Swiss psychiatrist, whose spirit hovered over the Iranos meetings and who has become a godfather of the secularized esotericism nowadays known as New Age. See Honograph's New Age religion again, of course, for that. By popular youngism, uh, Honograph says, I do not primarily mean the academic and therapeutic reception of Jung's analytic psychology, but rather the international grassroots movement that is formed around the symbolic image of Jung and takes the form e.g. of innumerable workshops, television shows, best-selling books, and video cassettes, or, in my opinion, also Jordan Peterson. A continuing interest in religious alternatives to official Christianity is evident from Jung and Irenos to popular Jungism and the New Age movement after the war. Irenos has also been at the origin of a distinct style of religious studies usually referred to as religionism. Note there, a general overview. This discussion is provided by J.G. Platvert, but it's in Dutch. But apparently it's very good. Otherwise I wouldn't mention it. And which has achieved enormous popularity in the United States after World War II. This perspective is associated with, in the United States with Mircha Eliade and the Chicago School of Religious Studies. Has come under increasing attack, along, attack along the waning of the counterculture after the 1970s. I'm actually just about to start reading a one a part of Eliada's travel biography that I found in Santa Rosa during the Kincaid fires when I was evacuated, and it's actually signed by him. I found a second-hand copy of Eliada's biography signed by Eliada. I love Merch Eliada. If you haven't read The Sacred and the Profane, get out of here. But obviously, you know, all these guys are going to be behind the times when you consider we've been doing studies and academic development does progress and and these old schools of thought if you go back to these fathers of our traditions like if you look at Ferdinand de Saussure or Charles Sanders Peirce for semiotics you're not going to really get a view of what semiotics is capable of until you look at how Umberto Eco united the two in his A Theory of Semiotics that's essentially what you see happening a lot of the times when people from other disciplines like Jordan Peterson go into Eliada and Jung and try and draw them, draw value out of them into, say, the world of, of clinical counseling. Plenty of value is possible to be drawn, of course, but that doesn't really give you a good perspective of where the current study of, say, religious scholars is at, much less theologians or um, anyone else from a field that isn't your own. That you like, you don't know what's happening in the study of religion if you're not reading Walter Honograph, for example. Still looking at Eliada as your main source, that doesn't make sense. But significantly, its basic discourse has, be, has continued to find a wide audience outside the academy due to extremely popular authors such as Joseph Campbell, 
and many lesser writers more or less influenced by Jungism. Campbell's sort of the poor man's Eliade, but of course so popular it's hard to deny his value. As Wasserstrom remarks, speaking of the end of the 20th century, the so-called New Age is a phenomenon entirely outside of the academy, and it is the New Age to which much of the spirit of history of religions has fled. That's actually a really good point. That's from Wasserstrom, Religion After Religion. The counterculturalism of Iranos is therefore of central importance to one of the most influential trends in the 20th century academic study of religion, on the one hand, and to a new type of popular religiosity on the other. But to prevent too hasty generalizations, some distinctions need to be made. In my book on the New Age movement, I distinguish between Western esotericism on the one hand and occultism on the other. It's actually one of Hanegraaff's books I haven't read, and I'm, I'm worried to read it because I think I'm going to love it and hate it at the same time. Um, yeah, there's, there's always, you know, there's always something to when scholars are studying something they've never practiced. It's good, but it's also bad. It's, it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky, tricky thing. Occultism I defined as comprising all attempts by esotericists to come to terms with a disenchanted world or alternatively by people in general to make sense of esotericism from the perspective of a disenchanted secular world. That's Hanegraaff's New Age Religion. Obviously this is an edict definition. It's good he makes note of that. Edict is theoretical as emic as emic was, is practical and experiential. Not to be confused with the very emic meanings, including the common use of le occultism in the wake of Elephus Levy and see Antoine Fevre's questions of terminology for that. Also, if you haven't read Antoine Fevre's fundamental book, Access to Western Esotericism, put down everything you're doing, go read that shit. Antoine Fevre, Access to Western Esotericism. Then go read his other stuff. Read all of Fevre. You have to read all of Fevre. It's, it's 101. Occultism, in this sense, might also be referred to as secularized esotericism and is characterized by hybrid mixtures between two worldviews that would logically seem to exclude one another. A traditional Western esoteric worldview rooted in a framework of correspondences and occult causality on the one hand and a modern scientific worldview based on instrumental causality on the other. The New Age movement, I argued, is argu clearly an occultist movement in this sense. Sure. Other examples of, include spiritualism, modern philosophy, and the New Thought movement. It is important to recognize, however, that although New Agers tend to interpret Carl Gustav Jung's writings from such occultist perspectives, Jung himself was not an occultist in the above sense. His theory of synchronicity as a non-causal connecting principle, explicitly based upon a traditional esoteric worldview of correspondence, as opposed to instrumental causality, reflects his adherence to a traditional type of esotericism with deep roots in German Naturphilosophie. And for anyone who hasn't done much reading in Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, that is also somewhat uh, essential if you really want to get into how Western esotericism really developed in the last 300 years. Um, it's just pretty crucial. Stephen Wasserstrom has provocatively argued that the fundamental perspectives of the great Iranos protagonists Gershom Scholem, Mircea Eliade, and Henry Corbin likewise reveal deep roots in the and affinities with various traditions of non-occultist Western esotericism. 
and he goes as far as concluding that they institutionalized in the academic study of religion an original esotericism. That is correct. Wasserstrom's arguments can be contested in several aspects. He certainly overemphasizes Christian Kabbalah and his generalizations about the influence of Germanic Romantic Illuminism, Naturphilosophie, and Traditionalism need to be nuanced. Um, note, Scholem's debt to Christian Kabbalah and German Romanticism is very clear, but the relevance of Christian Kabbalah to Corbin and Eliade is marginal at best. For Eliade's debt to Traditionalism and a critique of Wasserstrom's interpretations, see Spinetto's discussion in the present issue of Aries. Corbin was attracted to German idealism as well as to Swedenborg, rather than to Romantic Naturphilosophie. Um, compare that with uh, the contra pertinent discussion on Fevre, Le Question, and see especially his reference to the highly significant clash of opinion between Corbin and Ernst Benz, documented in the Cahier de Université Saint-Jean de Jérusalem, 2, 1976, pages 51 to 76, since I'm sure you have that exact edition in front of you at this very moment. But I would argue that this does not fundamentally affect his suggestion that Western esotericism is of key importance to understanding the nature and origins of the Iranos approach, and hence of religionism. In order to add nuance to the current debate about Wasserstrom's book, I suggest it is helpful here to adopt Colin Campbell's seminal concept of cultic milieu. Campbell, the cult, the cultic milieu, and secularization. And that is discussed also in New Age Religion by Hanegraaff which we should all read, including me. Richard Knoll's controversial presentation of Jung as the founder of a cult might be maybe slightly overstated, but the legitimate core of his argument can be readily interpreted, accepted by interpreting Irenos as an early intellectual and academic example of a modern cultic milieu. That the contemporary Jungian milieu frequently produces cult-like phenomena is hard to deny, in my opinion, and is easily accounted for by interpreting it as a cultic milieu. But one quite understands the irritation amongst Jungians about Noel's convenient comparison between the Jung cult and the notorious Ordre du Temple Solaire in a much-noted New York Times article published 11 days after the collective suicide murder of the Swiss-Canadian cult Noel. The Rose. The participants in, the, in such a milieu may have very different personal emphases. Sholem did not share Eliade's attraction to anti-historicist traditionalism. Christian Kabbalah remained marginal to Eliade. German Naturphilosophie is of little importance to Corbin, and so on. While yet sharing sufficient common ground to experience their particular spiritual perspectives as broadly compatible and mutually fruitful. Like the cultic milieu of the 1960s and 1970s, which eventually developed into the New Age movement, the cultic milieu of Iranos derived its coherence and sense of common purpose essentially from a shared pattern of culture criticism directed against the reductionist tendencies of the modern academy. The countercultural sentiment is perfectly expressed in Eliade's memories about Corbin's reason for founding his Université de Saint-Jean-de-Jerusalem in 1974. Corbin felt that, quote, scholars and philosophers who do not share in the reductionist fallacy ought to abandon their eagerly accepted subaltern positions in contemporary academia and rebel 
against the academic and cultural dictatorship of scientism, historicism, and sociologism. Accordingly, they should reassemble and constitute not a new type of theosophical society, but a new type of university. Note Eliada, some notes on Theosophia Perennis, for a recent statement along the same lines applied to the study of Westernism. See Angela Voss, the university. Yeah, Angela. The crucial difference between the Iranos cultic milieu, including offshoots such as the Université de Saint-Jean de Jerusalem, and the larger cultic milieu of the 1960s and 1970s, was that the former espoused a non-occultist spirituality. But this perspective, reflecting both affinity and familiarity with the nature of pre-Enlightenment esoteric traditions, inevitably came to be compromised to the extent that important elements of the highbrow Iranos vision were adopted and assimilated by the middle and lowbrow occultist cultic milieu, which would eventually become the New Age. Uh, note these differences may be gauged, for example, by comparing the physicist Wolfgang Pauli's Jungian analysis of the Kepler flood polemic and his application to the problem of the observer-observed relation in quantum physics. I conclude that the counterculture was indeed born of Ascona, but that it took more than one direction from there. These two main lines of development are closely linked to two broad religious currents in 19th 20th century culture, which have interacted in complex ways but should not be confused. The first current is ultimately rooted in Renaissance Hermeticism and Western Esotericism. Well, this is part one. But emerged by a thorough transformation of the latter and the impact of the Enlightenment and the secularization of Western society. This current typically compromises the 19th and 20th century materialism and a mechanistic worldview based upon instrumental causality and may ethically be referred to as occultism. Over the course of its development, it has easily assimilated characteristically American currents such as New Thought, and it has continued to flourish in the popular type of mass spirituality nowadays referred to as the New Age. A note for some new listeners, New Thought is the basis of like the Kabbalion, which is pseudo-hermeticism at best. While its enthusiasts never got tired of preaching the need for overcoming the gap between science and religion, and have continued to proclaim a scientific religion, occultism has never succeeded, even temporarily, to gain a foothold inside the academic community. Thank God. Present-day enthusiasts and representative of cultist counterculturalism may find inspiration in religionist academics such as Young, Eliada, or Joseph Campbell, but they do not do so on their own terms and do not necessarily appreciate, let alone adopt, these authors' non-occultist perspectives. <laughs> Of course not. Two, the second current has, likewise, important roots in Renaissance Hermeticism and Western Esotericism generally, but it is characterized by rejection rather than assimilation of the Enlightenment heritage. By way of counter-Enlightenment, the anti-modernist trajectories such as Illuminism, German Romanticism, and Traditionalism it leads right into the heart of the Iranos approach to the study of religion. Here we are dealing with a spiritual and intellectual tradition of considerable subtlety and intrinsic interest, which provided one important source of inspiration, although obviously not the only one, for some of the previous century's greatest scholars of religion. 
This tradition has always been intellectual rather than popular, has remained closer to traditional esotericism by favoring romanticism and traditionalism over the heritage of the Enlightenment and secular progress, and has remained true to its European and particularly German roots. It flourished in the setting of the Iranos meetings and is essentially to understand the religionist approach to the study of religion associated from scholars such as Jung, Eliade, and Corbin. I suggest that Wasserstrom's presentation of the Iranos vision as reflecting an original esotericism may be accepted if and only if this, understood, it, this is understood as referring to a characteristic modern esoteric cultic milieu. Most certainly, the Iranos vision cannot be reduced to any single one of the esoteric currents that fed into it, but it indeed represents an original, i.e. a creative and innovative syncretism, resulting spontaneously from intellectual group dynamics rather than from the ideology of any single current or thinker. Note. This is a long note. This is the only point on which I would challenge Spinetto's excellent discussion of Eliada and traditionalism in the present issue of Aries. Again, that is the major journal in this field. Spinetto explains very convincingly that traditionalist concepts and terms are integrated by Eliada within a different conceptual framework, that Eliada criticized the traditionalists on various points, and that he can in no way be considered a dogmatic follower of Gunon, Evola, or Kumaraswamy. Compared to any doctrinal traditionalist perspective, Eliada therefore emerges as not a traditionalist, but as somebody who took from traditionalism what he could use while disregarding the rest. And the same is true, mutatis mutandis, of any other Western esoteric influence on the major Iranos representatives. This does not mean, however, that Eliada could not emically have considered himself as an essential as in essential accord with traditionalism. That's in his practice as opposed to his theory and uh, external presentation. In other words, according to his own idiosyncratic understanding of its essence, rather than according to any doctrinal, Gunonian, Evolian, or Kumarswamian opinion. That this was indeed the case is strongly suggested by Quinn's recently published recollections of his encounters with Eliada which he writes were marked by an instantaneous and mutual understanding of the qualitative type that needs no further explication to the intuitive. I am not convinced by Spinetto's suggestion that Quinn's perception of Eliade as a kindred traditional spirit reflected merely wishful thinking. Quinn, according to Spinetto, wished to see his mentor as a traditionalist, and this desire was so strong that he did not even note the clear elements of criticism in Eliade's references to Kumaraswamy. I suggest that this I suggest that what they shared was not necessarily any doctrinal conviction, but merely a strong attraction to the general spiritual perspective of traditionalists. I would argue that as such they both felt at home not only in the same cultic milieu, but also shared similar traditionalist emphasis within that milieu. Clearly the religionist approach to the study of Western esotericism is itself a religious project. And what Honograph is essentially saying here is actually quite st quite harsh academically, because he is essentially saying that all these people, Joseph Campbell and Eliade and Jung, um, rather than studying the thing they were studying, they became the thing they were studying, right? Like, 
if you went to go in and study a cult and ended up becoming a member. That's essentially what is actually being pointed out. So, <laughs> more precisely, it is characterized by the study of Western esotericism from the spiritual perspective of a certain modern esoteric cultic milieu. This perspective may be given an occultist slant to the extent that authors representing Uranus style approaches are assimilated in popular non-academic types of counterculturalism. Whenever I refer to countercultural approaches in what follows, the reader should therefore keep firmly in mind that these approaches fall into a wide spectrum containing many shades and gradations between the intellectual and often considerably profound perspectives of the best Uranus traditions and the popular and often intellectually quite shallow ones typical of much New Age literature. Francis Yates and the Hermetic Tradition. So, Everything up till now was just Honograph making a, a sort of methodological comparative point about an issue that we'll see a similar comparative point to be made hereafter. As far as academic research is concerned, the idea of a hermetic tradition dates back to 1938, when the great Renaissance specialist Paul Oscar Christeller wrote an Italian article in which he called attention to the remarkable popularity of the Corpus Hermeticum in the culture of the 15th and 16th centuries. That is the article Cristeller Marsilio Ficino e Ludovico Lazzarelli. For the bibliographic materials on which Cristeller based himself, see his monumental Supplementum Ficinianum, Part 2. Outside the academic context, references to the Hermetic tradition occur already earlier, if you look at Evola's La Tradizione Hermetico. At first, Christeller's suggestion was picked up mostly by Italian Renaissance specialists, and in 1955, a pioneering edition of some Hermetic writings from the Renaissance was published in Rome. That's Guerin et al. Testi Umanistici. In Italy, at least, the study of Renaissance Hermeticism had now become part of academic research agendas, but there can be no doubt that the decisive international breakthrough of the Hermetic tradition as a historiographical concept came in 1964 with Francis Yates's famous Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic tradition. And that, of course, is a book that uh, Terence McKenna was a big fan of, and me as well, in my teenage years. Uh, by the way, continuing this on the next day because I passed out early and woke up bright and early again today. It's the way I like it. So <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the first part of this while I was uh, drinking wine and not coffee like I am now. Yates had simply adopted her concept of the Hermetic tradition from Italian Renaissance historiography. But as a gifted and imaginative writer, she was all able to present it to her readers in a manner that struck them as a revelation. Mm, see, that's actually a little academic jab, imaginative writer. She was an imaginative writer, but to say it in that context is, uh, it means what exactly? It could be, eh, you know what I'm saying, it's a little, it's a little, eh. An entire forgotten tradition, which had been marginalized and suppressed by mainstream historiography, suddenly seemed to have been brought to light. In the mainstream academic discussions, up to the present, the influence of Yeats's work has remained limited largely to its relevance to the history of science and philosophy. In an influential article published in 1967, she went 
Beyond her book on Bruno in making far-reaching claims about the Hermetic tradition as an essential, almost causal factor in the emergence of the scientific revolution. And this led to vehement academic debates all through the 1970s and beyond. Note the debate began already a year before, uh, but gathered momentum from 1970 on due to Mary Hesse's sharp rejection of Yeats's views. See Hesse, Hermeticism in Historiography. Since 1977, participants in the debate commonly referred to the Yeats thesis, but this thesis is actually an invention by Yeats's critic, Robert S. Westman, rather than by Yeats herself. See Westman, Magical Reform, and also Schmidt, Reappraisals, and Copenhaver uh, Review. That would actually be a good uh, paper to do next, is Hesse's uh, Hermeticism and Historiography. What eventually we're going to get to, uh, not in this essay, but in, in another one by Hanegraaff, is the argument that the idea of a hermetic tradition and a hermetic renaissance should be utterly thrown out. That is where this is all going, by the way, um, to the current state of academic research, which has thrown out that idea wholesale from Yeats's original thesis um, and replaced it with the idea of uh, Platonic Orientalism. Now, I do take issue with that, but there is a valid reason for a good part of it. And of course, you know, a lot of people are commenting on this now, though it is generally accepted among scholars that, that the idea of this uh, revolution of Hermeticism through the Italian Renaissance and onward is uh, inaccurate, or at least, at the very least, overblown. I think it is overblown. It didn't have the impact, but we're going to get to that. Nowadays, the extreme idea of the Hermetic tradition as a causal factor in the emergence of modern science is no longer accepted by historians, although weaker versions remain widely current. But the debate fueled by Yeats's provocative theses had the highly positive effect that the importance of the Hermetic dimension of the 17th century scientific and intellectual discourse is now generally recognized. Now, part of that, of course, is famously Isaac Newton's uh, interest in Kabbalah and alchemy. It's, 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 you could even argue he was more of a Kabbalist and an alchemist first before anything else. Um, and so it was important to unredact that aspect of how his spirituality and his um, pursuits in those marginal traditions actually led to his valid scientific discoveries. This is something that's been written about a lot, but, a lot, but hasn't generally disseminated into mainstream understanding as regards the progression of intellectual history and ideas. As a result, we now have considerable body of research, either or not directly indebted to Yeats's writings, focusing on the relations between Western esoteric currents and the development of modern science. And in many ways, the critical debate which has developed in this domain may be taken as a model for other disciplines. Note, I certainly do not intend to state or even suggest that all this research emerged straight from Yeats's writings, or was crucially indebted to her approach. What I am claiming is that such research became part of a broad trend of revisionist history of science and philosophy, which has owed its breakthrough to academic respectability to Yeats more than anyone else. Uh, the Warburg Institute is considered just one of the premium 
research institutes in the entire world. That's to work at, uh, be a scholar of the Warburg Institute trumps being uh, a scholar of Harvard or any American Ivy League or even British school. So, uh, like Oxford or Cambridge, it's just one of the elite of the elite. So, that's why you're always going to see a bit a, a good deal of respect paid to Yates, despite some of her uh, broader ideas being overturned. Again, if, concent- if I concentrate on the Yates paradigm in the rest of this article, this is not to claim that her approach is still basic to current research in the history of science and philosophy, although this may well be the case indirectly. For example, even a recent authoritative discussion of Bruno's scientific thought, such as Gatti, Giordano Bruno, that's a good book, cannot avoid arguing with Yates from the very first page and throughout the book. Rather, the central importance of the Yates paradigm in my discussion derives from the fact that it remains predominant in how the Hermetic tradition, and by implication Western esotericism generally, tends to be perceived by scholars in other disciplines of the humanities as well as by the general public. Francis Yates was not a religionist and had no relations with Iranos and its cultic milieu. However, she created a grand narrative about the Hermetic tradition, which happened to be tailor-made, as will be seen, for the spiritual agendas of counterculturalists. This grand narrative has two main characteristics, both of which are deeply problematic. 1. Firstly, the Hermetic tradition emerges from Yeats's writings as a quasi-autonomous traditional counterculture or undercurrent fighting a battle on two fronts, against Christianity on the one hand and against a rationalist scientific worldview on the other. Already soon after her book on Bruno, specialists warned against the danger of simplification inherent to such a perspective. And the progress of research has demonstrated that these warnings were justified. At closer scrutiny, none of Francis Yates's main protagonists of the hermetic tradition can really be reduced to a hermeticist or magus. Marsilio Ficino was a devout Christian Neoplatonist with great interest in the Hermetic writings, but he was also strongly influenced by scholastic philosophy and much else beside. Note, um, see for example the irritated remarks by Eugenio Guerin, one of the Italian pioneers in the field, about the lack of rigor and precision in current discussions about Hermeticism, and about Yeats's tendency to stretch her concept of the Hermetic tradition to an extent where it becomes as all-encompassing as elusive. About the general problematics of tripartite reason-faith-gnosis typologies, you can again look at Honograph's New Age Religion. Um, and especially on construction and Van de Boek and Hanegraaff's introduction. Uh, Kudere, Alison Kudere, Impact of the Kabbalah is a great book, which Hanegraaff here cites as well. I've covered Kudere as well. Alison Kudere is an amazing scholar. As I argued on these occasions, such a tripartite typology can be a useful heuristic tool as long as it is used strictly as an ideal typical construct. Understood as a description of history, historical developments, it can only lead to gross simplifications. So, we can understand new things by looking at the interaction of reason, gnosis, and faith, and the role that hermeticism has played in history, and as well as hermetism, hermetism being the original source documents, um, and hermeticism being the version of interpretation that 
came about in the Italian Renaissance in, in this you know 1500s from Ficino onward. So we can learn new things by looking at these redacted forms of, of, of knowledge and their role in mainstream intellectual history, religion, spirituality, etc. However, Yeats, it, he's arguing, of course, just went too far and turned it into the secret movement that was going on. And it wasn't a unified secret movement that was sort of sweeping the undercurrents of culture in the church. That's just something we uh, scholars have taken issue with from Yeats in the, since the beginning, and it's, it's pretty, pretty accurate. Um, also, check out Copenhaver's series of articles, Scholastic Philosophy, Renaissance Magic, and Iamblichus Sinesius, and Hermes Trismegistus. But also compare this to Honograph's uh, Sympathy, for, Sympathy or the Devil uh, essay, and about Ficino's De Vida Celitas Comparanda as a crypto-commentary on the Aesclepius from the Corpus Hermeticum, of course. Moving on further in part one of the two-part issues Honograph is addressing, Cornelius Agrippa was not just a Renaissance magus, but also a humanist, theologian, and a skeptical philosopher. And you can see Vanderpool's uh, book on uh, Cornelius Agrippa for more on that. Hermetism and magic are certainly of great importance to Giordano Bruno, but he was equally interested in questions of strict philosophy of science related to Copernicanism. Likewise, the complexity of a figure such as John Dee, one of Yeats's favorites, suffers from being reduced to the straitjacket of the Renaissance Magus. Ironically, one of the purest examples of a Christian hermetist in the Renaissance, Ludovico Lazzarelli, had been central to early pre-Yeats discussion of the hermetic tradition, but was almost completely neglected by Yeats herself and forgotten by her followers. In short, there was certainly much interest in the hermetic philosophy and related currents during the Renaissance, and Yeats rightly called attention to this, but there was no such thing as an autonomous or quasi-autonomous hermetic tradition. Uh, note, you can compare Peter French's thoroughly Yeatsian John Dee book with the much more complex thinker emerging from uh, Cloulet, John Dee's natural philosophy. Anyway, so the, the, the overall argument of the first point is, is that there wasn't some hermetic tradition that all these people were champions of and participants in, and that it didn't exist in some sort of platonic ideal sense floating up there that that these brilliant magi uh, dipped into to evolve their spirituality or knowledge of science. Rather, there was this heretical, semi-heretical current that went in and out of vogue since the original documents of the her her hermetist documents of the Corpus Hermeticum, and the, including the Emerald Tablet, which we now know should have been included in that corpus, um, that some people studied and dipped into for magical reasons or or pursuits of science, like Newton and, Newton and Co. So, there we go. The major second part that Honograph gets into is as follows. Secondly, Yeats's approach is characterized by a heavy emphasis on modernist narratives of secular progress. Now, to a note on this is the modernist framework is evident from the first sentence of Giordano Bruno. Quote, the great forward movements of the Renaissance, end quote, to the final chapter, with typical Enlightenment rhetoric on page 432, the 17th century represents that momentous hour in the history of man in which his feet began to tread securely on the, in the paths which have since led him unerringly onwards to the mastery over nature and modern science. So, Yeats really believes 
as we all know from reading her, that the Hermetic tradition is very much responsible for the breakthroughs we had in science. Modern scholars like Hanegraaff in this essay is pointing out, no. Now, I would argue and have argued for many years that that this whole argument is sort of, it, it, is, it is important, it's very important. But what's more interesting to me and what I pursued with Nicholas Goodrich Clark in my doc, doctoral research on hermeticism and heresy uh, on, in Evelyn Underhill is the role that vogue and heresy have played in the sort of creative genius of certain people as it speaks to transgression of, of liminality in the domains of research. And this leads into even the kind of stuff Weinstein's talking about these days with uh, the need for polymathism <laughs> uh, coming to come back because we get bound into our own little niches and fields and that can be uh, very myopic and lead to these sort of assumptions like Yeats's, and which is a classic uh, example. Francis Yeats is a classic example of modernist structuralist thinking, breaking things down into their basic components and then using those categories to define everything that fits into them. And that is what <laughs> we really needed post-structuralism to, to break that apart and say, no, this, uh, take a, let's take a more Aristotelian look at the details of these things and let them exist in their full complexity rather than trying to categorize them in this structuralist way into uh, their, their key components. Let's destabilize that and in that, through that methodology get a fuller picture of the complexity of ideas, of studies, of fields, and especially people to reduce... Hanegraaff's dead right about John Dee to reduce him to uh, some Enochian magus is is insane. He he was a spy. He was a scientist. He was a mathematician. Um, I think it was in in Jason Newcomb's Enochian master class I just went through, and I'll be interviewing Newcomb soon uh, this week. Uh, I think it was Aaron Leach who pointed out that. I don't remember which one of them, Leach or Stenwick or Newcomb, pointed out that John Dee had had read everything that was around. He had gone to the extent of human knowledge, and that's why he started to appeal to angels and divine spirits, because uh, that was, to him, the next logical source of getting new information. And I think that actually is something that could be really considered to have played a much larger role in why people delved into magic, apart from of course, the desire to just cause certain effects in the world. Much of the fascination of her writings relied on the intriguing paradox of an essentially non-progressive and scientifically backward tradition of magic that nevertheless, according to Yeats, had been the essential impulse and motor of the scientific revolution, and thus of social and cultural progress. Her background assumption is that magic is essentially conservative and static while science is progressive, whereas actually magical traditions are subject to historical change and development no less than science, philosophy, or religion. And that is a key point Hanegraaff is making, despite it being in parentheses. Academics often hide their uh, major points in parentheses or footnotes, and that's why I like to emphasize them, because that's where they're really saying what they're saying. The rest of the stuff is uh, to proof of what they're saying. But it depends if you're more interested in the academic tedium of proof or conclusion general value of conclusion. And, uh, of course, as a scholar, I like both. But for the listeners, take what you like. I'm going to 
focus on conclusions more than proof because I think that's the whole purpose of this podcast really is to find things that are useful for aiding and developing our own spiritual basis of understanding how we relate to nature and spirit and live our lives. And this assumption is closely linked to her view of the relation between Middle Ages and Renaissance. Like most of her contemporaries, Yeats greatly underestimated the continuities between the two in favor of a sharp opposition between the stagnant Dark Ages, which is Protestant rhetoric and pejorative and not accurate at all, by the way, with their old dirty magic (laughs) and superstition, and the Renaissance as the triumphant dawn of progress and science. See that? So that is something. One of my big issues with Jason Lou's book is he he becomes his own subject by you know, and you can see that in when he refers to things like Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. The Middle Ages were in fact more like a Golden Age. And it's counter-reformationist Protestant rhetoric that called it the Dark Ages to say, oh, this is before we had the Bible translated and before you know the Spirit had spoken to all men and women, and it was this just dirty, dirty Catholic time. But that's not what the Dark Ages were. The Dark Ages were a golden period where we rediscovered Aristotle and where Thomas Aquinas wrote the Summa Theologia, despite some of the shitty things he says in it. It was an amazing time of art, architecture, intellectual development. The streets and lifestyle weren't filled with shit and rats and dirt like we often say. I mean, those periods did happen, but it wasn't the general rule. So there's a very artificial distinction that has been done away with in, in scholarship that we now know is false between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And the idea of the Renaissance, in fact, by many historians is just being tossed out. The idea that there was even a period that should be called the Renaissance is very contentious now in among scholars. And even when I was studying this stuff 25 years ago, it, it was considered more of a problematic term than a, a way of defining a period of enlightenment. And that could also be applied to the enlightenment as well, though there's more distinct things to say, oh, here was the enlightenment when we started figuring these basic uh, facts of reality out. But again, the idea of, of dispensationalist categorization of periods of time and defining this such a structuralist modernist agenda at its core that it, it at best is heuristic at best it's going to help us get to a uh, some new insights and understandings of how time and history progresses but at worst it's as fucked up and flawed as the great men theory of history where most of us probably today alive still learned history in grade school as this uh, progression of one great man after another they would all have a dark page in their book of course but generally they were these great men like Charlemagne and, and Napoleon which is, uh, is just thank God for deconstruction and post-structuralism which actually started started to look at the basic assumptions and underpinnings of these more structuralist ideas and old school notions of of great men in great periods that were distinct and definable and toss that aside and say this is garbage history isn't just the sequence of these great men that helped us move from one period to the next and by great men it was meant great men that the whole idea is is radically flawed and just an an agenda of well many many things so um thank god for uh the development of human thought eh Ooh, and here uh Hanegraaff, of course is about to say some of the stuff that i was just talking about because yeah this is called up-to-date scholarship motherfuckers 
Within this modernist framework, <laughs> her crucial innovation was to suggest that genuine science emerged not simply by breaking free from magic on its own terms, but that the essential step leading towards it had been made by the magi themselves. And a note on that is Yeats's The Hermetic Tradition, uh, page 272, she says, The hermetic attitude toward the cosmos and toward man's relation to the cosmos was, I believe, the chief stimulus of that new turning toward the world, which, appearing first as Renaissance magic, was to turn into 17th century science. And on page 273, she writes about the hermetic texts, Neoplatonism, Pythagoro-Platonic and Kabbalistic currents, astrology and alchemy, that these were the Renaissance forces which turned men's minds in the direction out of which the scientific revolution was to come. All right. This thesis has led to vehement debates, to which I referred above. For our present purposes, we only need to note that Yeats's thesis is controversial only as long as it is seen in the context of a modernist narrative. And there we have it. Man, I can't believe he's moving on to say basically exactly what I said. <laughs> in postmodernist frameworks, which are not wedded to ideologies of progress, despite the current confusion and misappropriation of the word postmodernist and post-structuralist by people who don't understand it, like Jordan B. Peterson, who I, who I do like his work, but he doesn't understand those words and all the SJW stuff using postmodernist. None of those people are using those words accurately. And of course, they've redefined the word feminism to mean women are better than men instead of egalitarianism, which is what it actually means. You know, it's just a mess these days, but I don't have to tell you that. Um, in postmodernist frameworks, which are not wedded to ideologies of progress, it loses its explosive connotations, of course. Today we, are no longer in need, we no longer need to legitimate the study of hermeticism by presenting it as progressive, thank God. While the complex relationship between hermeticism and the rise of modern scientific thinking is obviously of great historical interest, and it is a real thing, there is there's relevance, there is causational relevance to these men who would study the, the most liminal aspects of knowledge, spirits and demons and sigils and alchemy, um, so that they could gain new inspiration, which is a spiritual progress and attitude um, to inform new ideas and come up with new things. I mean, anyone who separates Einstein from his spirituality is missing the whole point of Einstein. Western esoteric currents deserve serious attention whether they happen to be progressive or not. Amen. Dr. Hanegraaff knocks it out of the park. And that is why he runs the Department of Hermeticism at the University of Amsterdam. So in Yeats's writings, we have, firstly, the picture of the Hermetic tradition as a quasi-autonomous counterculture of magic and mysticism pitted against the dominant powers of church and rationality. And secondly, we have a modernist set of assumptions about science and progress, which underlies her presentation of this Hermetic tradition. The combination of these two results in a grand narrative about Hermeticism, which I refer to, will refer to as the Yeats paradigm. It is this idea of these grand narratives and ideologies that uh, postmodern and post-structuralist thought completely did away with. Um, it's so strange today that those words have been reappropriated to mean the opposite, just like the word feminism. Like, what's the quote? First they took our words, then they took our meanings. We're in trouble, folks, I tell you. 
This paradigm may be presented explicitly or assumed implicitly, and it can be encountered in diluted versions with or without mention of Francis Yates. I mean, we see this as practicing occultists in our fields so prevalently that I think this is probably one of the most important essays I could cover, along with the next one I'll do on uh, the Platonic Orientalism as a more valuable uh, term than her Renaissance Hermeticism is used as. But that's something I actually disagree with even more. But we'll get there one day. In itself, this narrative is quite compatible with the academic enterprise. We are simply dealing with a research paradigm from the 1960s, which now, several decades later, needs to be replaced under the pressure of new research, which relativizes the simplistic picture of autonomy and continuity, and new theoretical perspectives, many of which, following the collapse of the great ideologies, criticize modernist assumptions to various extents. Note here, for example, compare Yeats's approach to Renaissance magic with post-structuralist perspectives such as developed in Tomlinson, Music in Renaissance Magic. It's a great book, apparently. And uh, also see uh, Honograph did a review of it in, in Aries Journal, issue 22 in 1999. And a note when it comes to what Honograph said, where he uh, talks about the uh, new theoretical perspectives coming after post-structuralism, which, uh, following the collapse of the great ideologies, criticized modernist assumptions to various extents. That is actually the main project that I did in my book, The Ethics of Understanding God, in which I look uh, semiotically largely, but also m using mystical theology, um, which is not the wishy-washy thing a lot of New Agers think it is. It's highly technical and structural, uh, systematic, uh, like any form of philosophy. Um, where I look at removing a lot of the underpinnings around um, mystical dialogue and how that affects our decision-making processes ethically and leads us to right or wrong action in relationship to the world. Continuing, it should be superfluous to add that even if Yeats's books now need to be criticized on many points, they are deservedly considered classics of the academic study of Western esotericism. The departments that we have today might not even exist if it wasn't for her. To her great and lasting credit, Frances Yates opened up the doors for a new field of academic research while making highly original contributions to it herself. But while Yates herself wrote as a historian and never moved beyond the pale of scholarship, her grand narrative could e very easily be interpreted in a non-academic fashion, congenial to countercultural agendas of spiritual reform. This process now needs to be looked at in somewhat more detail. And that's going to be very interesting because that affects the mentalities we see at play in the spiritual world in the Western esoteric traditions that we all practice and follow today. Iranos meets Hermeticism, countercultural approaches to Western esotericism. In the wake of Theodore Rozak's well-known manifesto published in 1968, the counterculture has been associated mostly with the youth culture of the 1960s. Wow, that's amazing, because Theodore Rozak wrote one of my favorite novels of all times. And if you haven't read his book, Flicker, which is, uh, you just need to go read it right now. I missed, I, I was on a train going, I believe, from, Stuttgart to Prague, and I missed my stop by seven hours because I couldn't put that novel down. So go read uh, Rozak's Flicker. I believe it's Theodore Rozak, though maybe this is a different Rozak. But go read Flicker for the love of God. Flicker, Foucault's Pendulum, 
Glassbeat Game, those are the three books I would highly recommend everyone go out and read before you take another breath of fresh air. <laughs> um, however, it is important to emphasize not only that, as we have seen, counterculturalism is a phenomenon with much earlier roots, but also that far from having vanished during the 1970s, it has again, like the sexual revolution, become a permanent feature of contemporary culture. To understand countercultural interpretations of Hermeticism and Western esotericism, it cannot be sufficiently stressed that this phenomenon is not only, and not even primarily, a scholarly one reflected in learned writings, but relies on popular sentiments which are widely diffused throughout our culture and manifest in a variety of ways. We have to think of popular media such as journals, pulp fiction, best-selling mystery books, TV documentaries, multifarious websites, and so on. Essentially, such media use historiography in the interest of popular mythology, and their central theme is that of the suppressed alternative tradition. I will argue that the hermetic tradition has become one recurring element in this popular type of counterculturalism, unfortunately to the detriment of its academic reputation. Yeah, as we well know. But you, you all might not know that, so that's a good thing to know. The popular success of Francis Yates's book on Bruno has much to do with its perfect timing. Published in 1964, it fell in fertile soil among those who sympathized with countercultural agendas of spiritual reform. It is easy to see why Yeats's master narrative made the hermetic tradition look precisely like a traditional counterculture rebelling against the forces of the establishment. The Renaissance Magi had emphasized personal religious experience against the dogmas of the Church. <clears throat> we see that idea coming out largely today in the revival of Gnosticism post-OTO Aleister Crowley, and the problem with that, of course, is that it's it's being used in the same sort of ideological way as a, as a grand narrative against the idea of a dogmatic mainstream religions so which is is just it is a flawed idea like the idea that there you need to be a part of this alternative counterculture to have direct religious experience and that all mainstream spiritual practices uh are void of any sort of mystical connection through even in the through the forms of ceremonies such as masses or what have you any kind of religion uh it, it's just completely erroneous People have spiritual and mystical experiences in every possible variety, no matter what the container they have them in. You don't need an alternative, liminal, or transgressive, uh, heretical vogue to give you direct experience of spirit through nature. It's just not true. And a lot of people used that argument to their agenda, and it's to our detriment today as spiritual beings, especially as it regards um, being gracious towards each other and respecting each other's spiritual paths and letting them do what they want, which we should definitely do within, you know, certain reason. And they tried to bring the imagination to power, l'imagination au pouvoir, against the cold reign of quantity associated with mechanistic science. The dominant powers of church and science had joined forces in suppressing the hermetic tradition and thus the heroic attempts at social and spiritual reform by Pico della Mirandola, Bruno D., and the Rosicrucians and their spiritual heirs had been cruelly suppressed. Hmm. See, that's probably something that a lot of you think is the case. It's 
In the context of such a narrative, Giordano Bruno, burned at the stake in 1600, yep, that is a horrible, horrible thing, uh, emerges as the supreme martyr of a magical, mystical, enchanted worldview pitted against the sinister dogmatism and closed-mindedness of the establishment. Man, does this sound like uh, similar uh, narratives to anything going on today? Mm. Man, nothing changes, does it? From a countercultural perspective, the subversive implications of such a narrative are irresistible. It implicates all the forces of the establishment, whether religious or scientific, in what looks like a huge historical conspiracy against the spiritual counterculture of the West. That counterculture could now be given a name, the Hermetic Tradition. This is, this is a really good example of, of what, how, what McKenna uh, bought into. Um, though for the right reasons. Alternatively, and even more attractively, the hermetic tradition could be presented as one link in a larger chain of gnosis. Mm -hmm. Together with other suppressed alternatives such as Gnosticism, the Cathars, or the Templar tradition. Yeah, let's not forget the Cathars who believe the only valid form of sex was anal sex. So, yeah, a lot of weird shit gets... uh, uh, rationalized or norm, normalized to uh, some people through these alternative forms of spirituality. And that's one of the critiques of it, indeed. Um, sort of similar to the other professor from California I covered who talks about the smuggling of white supremacy and uh, fascism and totalitarianism through the ultra-traditionalist movements within contemporary neo-pagan culture and other uh, Western esoteric traditions. In such a context, Yeats's paradoxical interpretation of magic as a force of progress added a touch of genius. It suggested that the hermeticists and defenders of magic had not been locked in the mentality of a superstitious past, but had been the real champions of prog- progress all along. In ridiculing them as obscurantists and suppressing them as heretics, the establishment had actually been suppressing free inquiry and experiment. And apparently, the implied pattern of suppression had not stopped at the end of the Renaissance. Didn't the very novelty of Yeats's argument reveal a centuries-long conspiracy of silence about the existence and significance of the Hermetic tradition? Mainstream historiography had dismissed Hermetic magic as mere pseudoscience. It had ignored the Hermeticists or caricatured them as superstitious simpletons. And it had suppressed the evidence that many of the greatest scientists had been profoundly interested in in the occult sciences. This is very important and very true. And very parallel to what we see going on in scholarship and archaeology uh, with the uh, entheogens and psychedelic usage in ancient religion and throughout history. That has also been just almost completely redacted up until recent uh, retrievals. A note here... The, quote, conspiracy of silence aspect can be accepted as essentially correct. And you can see, compare that with Van den Broek and Hanegraaff's preface. Interpretations of hermetic magic and alchemy as pseudoscience, um, see the perspectives of Schumacher, natural magic, or Vickers on the function of analogy, are problematic, in my view, not because these phenomena are actually real science, but because they are rooted in religious worldviews which are misunderstood if one anachronistically judges them according to the criteria of modern science. That's a huge point. Um, See, for example, the excellent discussion on this point in Simon, Sciences et Savoir. So, Sciences et Savoir. Uh, My French is shit. 
that great scientists such as Newton and Boyle were highly interested in hermetic pursuits such as alchemy is no longer in any doubt. See Dobbs, Janus's Face of Genius, and Principe, Aspiring Adept. Well, that sounds like a book I should read. But obviously one should be wary of popular exaggerations suggesting, for example, that Newton was really an alchemist. Yeah, was he an alchemist or did he just pay attention and study some alchemy. The fact that he kept journals on alchemy and did experiments, I think, might count as being an alchemist. I mean, shit, how much do you need to do something to be considered, I don't know, make up your own minds. Again, these, these, this whole labeling thing is just so important to this, you know, older people that it's just, and, and now younger people. It's like, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm Gen X that I just, like, have this distaste of labels. I know the irony of that statement, but, like, uh, I just didn't grow up with people who were that interested in them. But the younger generation seems really keen on them, and the older generation seems really keen on on having labels for everything and defining themselves by these titles. I mean, that's just such a big thing with the with the gender revolution that's happening right now. Um, and it was such a big thing in my parents' times. Like, you know, what are you? Label yourself. It's like, fuck off. I'm just a human being, and I'm just thinking and doing things, and studying things, and sharing things, and that's it. Why do I need to have a fucking label? Maybe I'm not a human being, even. Maybe I'm just a spirit that is temporarily in this miracle of flesh, and blood, and bone, and one day soon I'll be dancing with the spirits high in the ethers again, and maybe not so far away as that, if I, uh, you know, find some mushrooms or DMT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said I'm having fun with this one, even if it's in the morning over coffee. Okay. So these people were all interested in the occult sciences. That that was highly redacted. It was highly marginalized. D was mocked as this crazy charlatan sorcerer, blah, blah, blah. In short, Yeats's master narrative exposed mainstream accounts of science and progress as ideological constructs by means of which the establishment had attempted and was still attempting to suppress and silence its rivals, which is exactly what's going on and has been going on the last 60, 70 years with, the, with entheogenic studies. All the basic elements of such narrative can actually be found explicitly formulated or clearly implied in Yeats' writings themselves. But crucial to countercultural interpretations of Yeats's work was the addition of an extra element, the suggestion that the magical and enchanted worldview of the hermetic tradition might now be revived by way of a new renaissance, and that scholars should see it as their task to stimulate such endeavors of cultural and spiritual reform. Think about that one for a sec. This idea is widespread in all types of counterculturalism, from the hybro-Uranos vision to its popular occultist derivations, but it is not to be found in the writings of Frances Yates. Throughout her book on Bruno, Yates emphasized that the authority of the Hermetic tradition had been based upon a huge error in dating. And accordingly, she claimed, quite mistakenly by the way, that Isaac Casabon's correct dating of the Corpus Hermeticum in 1614 had essentially spelt the end of the Hermetic tradition. And a note on that is that Yeats and Giordano Bruno uh, and Alan Debus 
on that remarked that the first half of the 17th century was actually marked by a heightened interest in the occult philosophy, and Yeats herself later accepted this criticism as justified. Debus suggested that the tradition did collapse after 1660, but in fact, Ralph Cudworth's criticism of Casabon in his influential The True Intellectual System of the Universe, 1678, caused the authority of the Corpus Hermeticum to remain partly intact even during the 18th century. And the early Enlightenment actually witnessed an unprecedented flood of popular hermetic literature in some countries. And you can double-check that in Kemper, Aufgeklärte Hermetismus. Aufgeklärte Hermetismus. Clarified Hermeticism. She would have found it an odd idea that Hermeticism based on noble and beautiful but evidently untenable assumptions, would or could be revived in modern society. Bruno and the Hermetic tradition might have pointed the way towards genuine science, but their central beliefs were mistaken and their worldview belonged to the past. We see evidence of that same problem with the, uh, the Kabbalion by Atkinson with uh, guidance from Paul Foster Case and how it's just blown up as like the, this sort of new dogmatic um, principle uh, ideology uh, that should define the future of hermetic thought when in fact it's just this uh, inspiring yet slightly trashy um, product of new thought. This is where countercultural interpretations were more optimistic. The idea of the hermetic tradition as a counterculture suppressed and marginalized by the mainstream, was adopted, and so was the idea of its progressive nature. But while Yeats emphasized the hermetic will to operate, combined with an optimistic view of man as the two crucial elements pointing the way toward the development of genuine science, countercultural interpretations added an extra element, the magically enchanted worldview of hermeticism itself. It's important to note that everything I know from students who have studied with Hanegraaff, though he and I have never really talked, um, have always pointed out to me that he doesn't believe in any of this stuff at all. And it's not even necessarily a question of belief for him. It's just a question of um, it's not scientific, therefore it's not real. So he doesn't really look or consider the fact that it, it plays a much of a role in people's living spirituality today. My protege... Uh, uh, curse be his name, <laughs> uh, when studying with him in Amsterdam and doing his master's, would constantly call me while I was in Belfast and and tell me like how no one there, pretty much, except for a couple other people like Jeremy Crow, his classmate, um, really had any spiritual practices in the Western esoteric tradition. There is a stark divide between scholars and students studying esotericism and those who practice it. Those of us who practice it and study it as scholars without really confusing the two, but allowing a dialogical information uh, relationship between the two, are amongst the rarest. And that's why I'm doing these things, to sort of look at the aspects of actual knowledge so that we can base our, our knowledge and spiritual practices on valid information as opposed to a bunch of garbage that is just made up, um, as well as looking for gems that could inform a healthy spirituality that will allow us to actually grow as human beings. They suggested that the suppression of the hermetic tradition and the ensuing conspiracy of silence had caused Western culture to get trapped in the spiritual dead alley of excessive rationalism and the mechanization of the world picture. And this is where I always like to think of Steiner, um, because I think Steiner, while he was coming out of the same 
uh, you know, modernist era, he looked at the tradition, I think, in a very healthy way as this secret stream, rather than this marginalized knowledge that was a tradition that uh, was countercultural and fought back against um, the problems of its various times from the Renaissance to today, he sees it as a, in, in the context of spirituality and spiritual theology, mysticism, and looks for the ways in which it can inform the development of the human being. And that's what I like about Rudolf Steiner. Um, genuine progress now required a re-enchantment of the world and a rediscovery of the sacred. That is great. Yes. Um, Note for programmatic statements, see Morris Berman, Reenchantment of the World and Coming to Our Senses with a discussion with discussion of Yeats and the Hermetic Tradition in chapter science, chapter seven of that book, Science and Magic. The goal was a new renaissance of cultural and spiritual renewal, in which man would overcome his alienation from nature and the sacred, and science would no longer be divorced from spirituality. The leading ideas of the Iranos tradition, expressed not only by the founding members, of course, but also by authors in the same tradition, such as, for example, Joseph Campbell, James Hillman, Robert Avins, were tailor-made for an approach to Hermeticism and Western esotericism along these lines. A note there is Campbell's counterculturalism emerges very clearly in, for example, the fourth volume of his Masks of God series, Creative Mythology, and his ideas achieved mass popularity due to a series of TV interviews with Bill Moyers. See Campbell and Moyers' Power of Myth. Among Hillman's many and influential books of particular importance is his Revisioning Psychology, with a long final chapter on the Hermetic tradition, dependent not just on Yeats, but on the Warburg school generally. Like Hillman, Avins looks at what he calls gnosis from a psychological perspective. Gnosis is an ancient name for depth psychology, and that's in the magazine or the book The New Gnosis, page 5. Um... Yeats's hermetic tradition was already congenial to religionism due to its emphasis on personal religious experience, the power of myths and symbols, and the religious imagination. And from a religionist countercultural perspective, it was natural to add the idea of the sacred as basic to a transdenominational spirituality, easily combined with the esoteric concept of philosophia perennis, perennial philosophy. And this, of course, does tie back into the Italian Renaissance Neoplatonic idea of the Prisci Theologia. And the ideological subtext of a battle against the values of modern world in the name of spiritual reform. Countercultural approaches along such lines have mostly presented the Hermetic tradition within the wider context of a history of gnosis. From the suppression of the Gnostics in late antiquity and of the Cathars and the Templars in the Middle Ages, a continuous line could be drawn to the suppression of the Hermetic tradition in the Renaissance. A history of Gnosis, understood as the spiritual counterculture of the West, became synonymous, therefore, with a history of suppressed alternative traditions. Yeah. I, of course, like to point out, and I do in my work, in my books, um, that that, that there's an invalidity to this idea. I mean, you see so many deeply mystical theologians, from Meister Eckhart to St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, working within the orthodoxies of their churches, but teaching the same spiritual practices that 
lead to the same ecstatic religious experiences. You see this in the Kabbalists as well. So the idea that there was this hermetic tradition that was counterculture against the mechanistic increase of rationalism is, is, is provenly false um, by Hanegraaff here. And uh, that doesn't damage our spirituality or development in, in, in these fields at all. It actually empowers us to take more ownership of these traditions and their ideas and make use of them in ways that is, are useful to us, as opposed to subscribing to some sort of ideological trend or the idea of, of being part of some secret suppressed tradition that needs to fight back. Those are not helpful models of thought or understanding of our the spiritual practices that, that we use on a daily basis. Part three, two academic chairs. Western esotericism at the École Pratique de Haut Étude. Section. Against the background sketched above, let us now look at the study of Western esotericism as has developed in the academy. Blah. Sorry, I said that badly, but it doesn't matter. So we're talking, we're going to talk about Sorbonne now. Um, it is significant that we owe the world's first university chair, specifically devoted to the study of this domain, to the personal initiative of Henry Corbin, Henri Corbin, one of the central figures of the Iranos approach, and undoubtedly the most explicitly esoteric intellectual of the three scholars analyzed by Wasserstrom. Corbin was directeur d'études, i.e. professor at the prestigious French Institute for the Study of Religions. Oh, maybe this is not the Sorbonne. All right. That's right. I always get them confused. Fucking France. The fifth section of the École Pratique, Pratique des Hauts Études in Paris at a time when, in 1964, the Chair for History of Scientific Ideas in Modern Europe, hitherto held by Alexandre Creuret, became vacant. Since there were no suitable candidates in that field, the chair had to be taken by someone from another area of specialization. That's awesome. The choice fell on Francois Secret. I mentioned him before. A scholar, he was the mentor of, uh, of Antoine Fevre, a scholar who had already a great reputation as a historian of Christian Kabbalah. Secret, or spelled secret, was appointed in the same year, and the chair now had to be given a new title. When this subject was discussed during a meeting of the members of the fifth section, Henri Corbin suggested that given Secret's area of specialization, the chair might appropriately have the term esotericism in its title. The result was a vote for the title History of Christian Esotericism. And there's a really cool footnote here that says Antoine Fevre, personal communication to the author. So Voter Hanegraaff called up Antoine Fevre and got these details directly from him about how this went down. <laughs> cool. It may be noted here that Secret, unlike Corbin, was not a scholar of with religionist leanings, but a representative of the strict historical school. Much later, in 1979, he was invited to give a lecture at Iranos, but he proved not to be congenial to that milieu and was not invited again. <laughs> Note, nor was he interested in being invi invited again. He did not feel comfortable in the Iranos milieu, Fevre, personal communication. In 1979, a year after Corbin's death, Secret was succeeded by the present chairholder, Antoine Fevre, and the title of the chair was changed to History of Esoteric and Mystical Currents in Modern and Contemporary Europe. It's a big plaque for a door, isn't it? 
Like Secret, Fevre is a scholar in the French academic tradition, with its strong emphasis on detailed, almost positivist historiography. Originally trained as a Germanist, a Germanist, that's actually just like me and my Dr. Vater, Nicholas Goodrich Clark, and I was trained, of course, originally by Idle Tim, Dr. Idle Tim, who wrote Yeats und Nietzsche und uh, Ketze und Dichter, and taught me through high school at Vancouver Walder School, where he still teaches, I believe. He might have just retired, though, to prune his bonsai trees and make fruit wine. He had written important studies on 18th and early 19th century Christian theosophy, Illuminism, and Romantic Naturphilosophie. His research interests were therefore perfectly congenial to those of the Iranos milieu, and Fevre became a regular participant of the Iranos meetings, as well as of Corbin's Université de Saint-Jean de Jerusalem. Note he gave lectures at Iranos in 1973 and 74 and contributed to the Cahiers, which is, means books in French, of the Université de Saint-Jean de Jerusalem in 75, 76, 1978, 84, and 86. Now, it is somewhat bizarre that while Stephen Wasserstrom recognizes that serious academic scholarship may well coincide with personal esoteric commitment in the case of figures such as Corbin or Eliade, he all but ignores Fevre's scholarly oeuvre and simply presents him as an esotericist whose books are written from an esoteric perspective, naturally. Uh, the note there is from Wasserstrom's Religion After Religion. So that is an odd thing to sort of like saying these guys had an agenda and this guy was pure, which is uh, <laughs> counter to the nascent idea you see in, in Gadamer's brilliant understanding of the Vorverständnis, of for pre-understanding and prejudice, which is always present. This reflects insufficient familiarity with Fevre's academic oeuvre, the bulk of which is in French and has only begun to be translated into other languages during the last decade. Somewhat ironically, while Fevre is undoubtedly a product of the Iranos cultic milieu, no less than of French Germanistic studies, his approach to research is actually closer to Scholem than to either Corbin or Eliade. While Wasserstrom correctly characterizes Eliade as essentially a gifted generalist and popularizer, whose work was largely derivative, most accomplished not at original research, but rather at a kind of haut-vulgarisation, high vulgarization, Favre's lasting contributions are the result of detailed research based on original source materials. And while Fevre has never tried to hide his sympathy for Christian theosophy and German Naturphilosophy, in his writings one does not find anything like the numerous passionate and virulently polemic defenses of an esoteric worldview typical of Corbin's writings. Of particular importance is the fact that in Fevre's writings, as in those of Scholem, one does not find the sentiments of anti-historicism which are so conspicuous in Corbin and Eliade. In some, both Scholem and Fevre have occasionally passed beyond the strict boundaries of empirical historiography if the occasion called for it, and both participated in a cultic milieu that may be qualified as esoteric in the precise sense defined above. But it remains true that both remained academic scholars of esotericism rather than esotericists using the study of historical currents as a vehicle for promoting their own particular beliefs. See, that's better said than I've ever tried to say it, so well done, 
Dr. Hanagaf. The Hidden Flowering of the Study of Western Esotericism Briefly, after the first chair for Western esotericism was founded in Paris, Francis Yates's book on Bruno was beginning to cause widespread interest in the hermetic tradition among academics and among the general public. The following years were marked by experimentation and an unprecedented expansion of the universities, and one might have expected the study of hermeticism and Western esotericism to have profited from this. Contrary to such expectations, however, the academic institutionalization of Western esotericism as a field of research did not take place. The Paris chair would remain an isolated phenomenon for almost three decades and a half. Against the background of the preceding discussions, it is now possible to analyze what happened and why. To that end, I distinguish between five different categories of scholars who have been involved in the study of Western esotericism since the 1960s. 1. Historians of science and philosophy. 2. Generalists in the humanities. 3. Countercultural religionists. 4. Esoteric universalists. and 5. Specialists of specific subjects and currents. Yeah, I would be a five for sure. Though when I was young, I was wholeheartedly subscribed to the esoteric universalist methodology and just a lover of the countercultural religionists, especially Eliade was my, my main influence. Firstly, Yeats's work did, did cause a new academic interest in Hermeticism, but as we have seen, the effect remained mostly limited to the disciplines of history, of science, and philosophy. In this context, Yeats's approach was subject to critical debate, eventually leading to more nuanced views. I mean, again, that is what I've, I've tried to do uh, in my work in the realms of mystical theology and semiotics. Well, semiotics is more the methodology I use, but... They do both uh, have something to say about metaphysics, especially if you look at my favorite author, Robert Corrington's work, especially in Ecstatic Naturalism and a Semiotic Theory of Theology and Philosophy. The study of Hermeticism in relation to the history of science and philosophy has continued to flourish and produce new studies of high quality. However, this happy development has hardly led to the establishment and recognition of Hermeticism as a separate domain of research with its own chairs and departments, journals, publication series, and so on. Scholars in this field usually do their work in the context of general departments for history of science, medicine, philosophy, and so on, and publish their research in journals belonging to these disciplines. As a result, they are typically working in a situation of intellectual isolation, as far as the general field of Western esotericism is concerned, and not infrequently, their immediate colleagues look at their area of specialization with a mixture of surprise and suspicion. For a list of uh, quali high-quality works, Honograph presents the following research reflected in the collective volumes by Regini Bonelli and Shia, Reason, Experiment, and Mysticism, 1975, Heinekamp and Mettler, Magia Naturalis, 1978, Vickers, Occult and Scientific Mentalities, 1984, Merkel and Debus, Hermeticism and the Renaissance, 1988, Debus and Walton, Reading the Book of Nature, 1988, Osler, Rethinking the Scientific Revolution, 2000. Some of the better-known specialists are Alan G. Debus, Walter Pagel, Betty Jo Teeter-Dobbs, Cesare Vasoli, Wayne Schumacher, Richard Westfall, and Paolo Rossi. A. Rupert Hall, Brian Copenhaver, and William Newman, but any such lists risks omitting a number of important names. 
Um, and mention should also be made, however, of the journal Ambix, published by the Society for History of Alchemy and Chemistry. Um, it's not a surprise if most of you have never heard of any of those people, because there's a massive divide that is very unhealthy between the world of esotericists and occultists that we all know and love, and the academics who do the research that should be providing us good information to inform our spirituality. Building a bridge between those two camps is what I am doing with Angela Voss and the Arcane Research Society, and was inspired by my mentorship under Nicholas Goodrich Clark and the image or motif of the bridge, which has been the founding image of the Association for the Study of Esotericism, the academic society in North America for such scholars. And we have ESWE, E-S-S-W-E, in, in Europe. Um, you can find all of that sort of information on my website, esotericebooks.com, and uh, check it out. Also, I have recommended reading on occultauthors.com. Secondly, a limited number of scholars since the 1960s have seen Hermeticism and Western esotericism as their general area of specialization and have approached this domain from a variety of disciplines in the humanities, such as intellectual history, history of religions, art, literature, music, and so on. Hence, I refer to them as generalists of Western esotericism in the humanities. And that's a good point. And a note there, again, any list is bound to be incomplete, but some examples of generalists in the study of Western esotericism as intended here are Antoine Fevre, James Webb, Jocelyn Godwin, Arthur Vesluis, Gerhard Wehr, Miss Christopher McIntosh, yeah, my man, Jean-Pierre Laurent, and the author of this article, <laughs> Walter Hanegraaff. Of course, not all of these authors cover all periods from the Renaissance to the present in their actual research, but even if they concentrate on a more specific area, nevertheless they clearly perceive their contributions as part of the study of Western esotericism in such a general sense. Even more clearly than in the case of my first category, the near absence of academic structures has typically caused such generalists to remain in a situation of relative isolation. I don't know anything about that. <sighs> Man, I mean, it's not like I had to create a podcast just to have someone to talk to about this, even if it is the ethers and you listeners. Due to a lack of standard introductory courses and textbooks, not to mention academic curricula, most of them have developed essentially as autodidacts. Yep. Forced to make their, the field their own by a time-consuming process of trial and error, which is what this is. As a result, their ways of looking at the field and their personal emphases have shown considerable variety, and this makes it risky to generalize about them. Nevertheless, I venture to suggest that, whether or not they were conscious of the fact, generalists have tended to understand Western esotericism as a relatively self-contained phenomenon, and have focused on it supposed specificity and internal history rather than on its complex interdependence with mainstream developments. And that is where I'm acting as a corrective. That's exactly the problem that I am seeking to help ameliorate. So, good for me. Note there, per this perspective may sometimes be bound up with a realist or naively realist approach, which fails to recognize the nature of Western esotericism as an etic construct. That's fair. Psychologically, this is understandable, but it has had the unfortunate effect that outsiders, in turn, have tended to perceive the field of Western esotericism as a kind of island, 
something which might be of concern to those who happened to find its manifestations interesting in and of for themselves, but which had no obvious scholarly relevance to others. Thirdly, many scholars of such generalist type have additionally understood Hermeticism and Western esotericism from perspectives congenial to broadly countercultural religionist agendas. They typically saw Western esotericism not as just another domain of academic research, but that it should be a source of inspiration for spiritual reform in the academy and in the general society. Some of these scholars belong partly or even primarily to the previous category, but additionally express themselves in a countercultural religionist manner from time to time. Eh, we all step into that pothole once in a while, I suppose. And, of course, some academics would say I'm standing and making my home in that pothole, but that is, of course, the criticism that many etic approaches will make of anyone who actually practices any kind of spirituality in their real life. Because as we all know, you can't be a serious intellectual if you have a spiritual life whatsoever. That is a common critique you will hear in the academy. Some of these scholars belong partly or even primarily to the previous category. We did that. The influence of Eliade's Chicago School on Religious Studies in the United States has created at least some room for such countercultural religionist approaches to Western esotericism in regular academic settings. But the more outspoken representatives of this approach have tended to be working outside or on the outer margins of the academy. Not infrequently, they are associated with alternative academic or semi-academic ventures inspired by countercultural ideals. Writings belonging to this third category fill the entire spectrum typical of countercultural religionism. In many gradations, from subtle interpretations in the best Irenos traditions to typical New Age literature far removed from genuine academic research. Fourthly, there have been those who were interested not so much in Hermeticism specifically as in esotericism generally, but who understood this term in a sense different from the one that we have been using here. According to this traditionalist understanding, which turns out to be implicitly assumed in many religionist studies of esotericism as well, the esoteric means the inner dimension, or universal essence of religion per se. For an excellent example, see many contributions to the French Dictionnaire Critique l'Esotérisme, as analyzed by Carole Frozier in the present issue of Aries. As a result, the actual object of research is not actually esotericism in the sense of a number of specific currents in Western culture, but some kind of universal esotericism, understood as equivalent to concepts such as Sophia Perennis, tradition, spirituality, or the sacred, generally. My very description of these first four developments, or for the fifth, see below, already suggests why the study of Hermeticism and Western esotericism failed to gain the academic recognition that might have been expected in the wake of Yeats's writings. Since the differences between the four developments, and between the last three in particular, were not evident to most academics, the predictable result was that everything referred to as esotericism came to be tarred with the same brush. If countercultural religionist approaches were accepted in the academy at all, a development which took place mainly in the United States but has always remained alien to Western European universities, they tended to be 
to understand esotericism as more or less synonymous with spirituality, the sacred, or even religion in general, thus blurring from the outset the specificity of Western esotericism as a separate domain, consisting of a definite number of specific historical currents. On the other hand, to the extent that Western esotericism was presented as a separate field of study, academics were bound to suspect religionist agendas implying apologies for esotericism rather than an academic study of it, and as a result, they would tend to reject it. In many cases, their suspicions were correct, but in other cases, they were mistaken. To this day, scholars studying Western esotericism from an academic perspective may encounter opposition because they are incorrectly assumed to be apologists. And let's remember that apologists and apologetics doesn't mean to apologize, it means to explain something. That's uh, something where people are forgetting these days. Finally, even if this does not happen, the field still runs the risk of being perceived as some self-enclosed and out-of-the-way pursuit with little or no relevance to problems of general importance to academics. Essentially, my conclusion is a simple one. The only generally available paradigm for the study of Western esotericism, Yeats's grand narrative, was simply too vulnerable to countercultural reinterpretation to be suitable as the basis for mainstream academic institutionalization. Note, it is only during the 1990s that an alternative paradigm has presented itself in the form of Antoine Febvre's off-quoted definition of Western esotericism as a form of thought characterized by four intrinsic and two non-intrinsic characteristics. See Antoine Febvre, Access to Western Esotericism, which I've mentioned before, pages 10 to 15. You have to read that book. Until you've read Antoine Febvre's Access to Western Esotericism, you don't really know much about it, um, not critically speaking. Uh, you might It might be part of your spirituality, but you don't know the groundwork that you're discussing. Of course, the discussion remains wide open, and eventually this paradigm might be replaced in turn. I'll remind you that you can go to occultauthors.com for Fevre's, uh books and other recommended readings in the field of esoteric scholarship. As a result, the academic study of Western esotericism had no option but to develop invisibly and fragmentedly, carried by the cumulative effort of individual scholars, working in relative isolation rather than as an internationally organized discipline. This brings me to my fifth and final category of specialists in specific subjects and currents. Perhaps the most important fact about the modern study of Western esotericism is that it has, in fact, been flourishing for decades, in the sense that a remarkably great and increasing numbers of scholars in a wide variety of disciplines have been quietly studying and publishing about currents and phenomena that actually belong to this field, but were simply not conceptualized as such. Notes, nobody who attempts to systematically keep track of international published research in Western esotericism can fail to be impressed by the sheer amount of current activity in this field, frequently of excellent academic quality. When I speak with scholars from an older generation, they frequently mention... That's a lot of use of the word frequently. Anyone else hear that? Anyway, whatever. Mention the difference in this respect between the period of the 1960s and 70s, when they were isolated pioneers whose interests ran against the current of the times and recent years. Personally, 
I believe that the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 symbolically demarcates the emergence of a new post-ideological academic mentality, which is critical of the grand narratives, and hence instinctively receptive to innovative projects such as critical and unbiased study of Western esoteric currents. It's interesting, isn't it, how much today this whole new <laughs> brave new world or... Uh, of 1984 that we're in, where these words, the meanings and definitions have been taken away from these things. Honograph mentions both structuralism and post-structuralism in their proper contexts as tools for scholarship and critical thinking, whereas most of those words now, in very recent years, from Evergreen onward, have turned into almost meaninglessness, uh, because, like, I mean, the whole purpose of Honograph acknowledges that deconstructive methodologies were used to eradicate the ideological structuralism uh, and grand narratives of previous scholarship, and you know the, the, the that's mentioned uh, in the religion religionism movement. Um, but now, if you talk about those things, they are associated with the development of ideology. So all of a sudden, people think that critical scholarship and deconstructivist theory is the the purpose is to create ideology. That isn't. It's that's a misuse of the word and a redefinition of it. Just like again, feminism has been redefined to mean the opposite of what it means. It's super weird and very frustrating for scholars and anyone with uh, who cares about logic and critical thinking. Historians of medicine might study the writings of Paracelsus. Historians of chemistry might contribute to our knowledge of alchemy. Historians of philosophy might write about philosophers such as Ficino or Pico. Historians of art and literature might study the occult in late 19th century symbolism, and so on and so forth. He should have mentioned, like, <laughs> they always, they always, I love that esoteric scholars often marginalize my field, which is <laughs> maybe the field that it came out of, which is theology and spirituality, because we start, we look critically at esoteric currents within mysticism and, and theology, especially heresy. Um, and that is a crucial and perhaps the largest of the esoteric fields, but is marginalized in itself because of the bias against anything theological these days, which is promoted by people who are essentially functioning as either uh, study, scholars of theology or f functioning to act as foils against the purpose of theology, which is spirituality. It's a very interesting thing. Even there's bias within biases. It's always <laughs> very, very complicated. Many of these scholars have never perceived themselves as scholars in the field of Western esotericism, and some do not wish to be so perceived at all. Their reservations are quite understandable. After all, they have never had much to gain by such associations, but had much to lose by it. To be perceived as a student of esotericism might raise eyebrows among their colleagues and could seriously discredit their reputation. I wouldn't know anything about that, would I? The challenge we are now faced with is to develop the study of Western esotericism into a generally recognized and professional field of academic research, so that these specialists not only can feel safe to join forces with generalists, but may also expect to reap some real benefits from doing so. A second academic chair at the University of Amsterdam. 
In September 1999, the Paris Chair of Western Esotericism was finally joined by a second one at the University of Amsterdam. Connected with the world's first complete sub-department under the title of History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents. Note, the sub-department now consists of one full professor, Walter J. Hanegraaff, and two lecturer researchers, J.P. Brock and O. Hammer. The existence in the same city of the world-renowned Bibliotheca Philosophica Hermetica provides excellent conditions for fruitful collaboration, which will be formalized in the context of an Amsterdam platform for hermetic studies. Very significantly, the official documents explicitly stipulate that research and teaching in the context of the new sub-department will not be based on any religion or worldview, i.e., that it will take place from a metaphysically neutral perspective. Amen. <laughs> this entails a deliberate choice to leave behind the countercultural religionist heritage of the study of Western esotericism. In addition, the subdepartment's teaching curriculum and research program, Western Esotericism and Modernization, explicitly aim to move beyond Yeats's grand narrative, not only in its countercultural manifestation, but in its original academic historical guise as well. As we have seen, Yeats's guiding idea of a quasi-autonomous hermetic tradition, separate from Christianity, rational philosophy and science, has proved impossible to uphold. And likewise, her modernist assumptions about progress are highly problematic. Again, this is another point about its structuralism and the modernist movement that actually led to grand narratives and ideological uh, uh, co-option of academic fields, and it was post-structuralism and deconstruction that freed us from ideologies and grand narratives. Oh, please remember that. The Amsterdam sub-department reflects the move towards a new approach to the academic study of Western esotericism, which replaces the grand narratives of modernity by a fine-grained discourse emphasizing complexity and historicity, and refuses to draw sharp and impermeable barriers between esotericism on the one hand and mainstream currents of Western culture on the other. The great advantage of such an approach is that it takes Western esotericism out of the isolation of a traditional counterculture and can demonstrate its considerable relevance to research going on in other academic disciplines. The study of esotericism is something that I love because it helps fight back against the redacted knowledge we've been spoon-fed from the great men theory of history to the uh, removal of the entire history of uh, entheogenic and, and psychoactive substances from all of religion, as if they never existed there, uh, and this almost like almost like our history of religions were taught by the founders of the temperance movement or something. This approach reflects a general trend, which may in fact be perceived in an increasing number of recent studies pertinent to the domain of Western esotericism. As such, it is a natural development from the first two categories discussed above, and the second one more in particular. While providing a general paradigm capable of encompassing those belonging to the fifth, in the next section I will argue that it represents a fruitful alternative to the countercultural religionist and universalist perspectives of the past, i.e. my third and fourth categories. Part 4. Two Perspectives. The Future of the Counterculture. <laughs> Sorry, just teasing some British friends. 
Students of Western esotericism have often complained about the narrow-minded hostility of the academic establishment against their field of interest. But my discussion implies that actually, with respect to much that has been going on under the umbrella of the study of esotericism, academics were perfectly justified in being suspicious. It's fair. Regardless of the intrinsic interest and intellectual quality they may sometimes have, religionist counterculturalist approaches to the study of Western esotericism, as to the study of religion generally, are ultimately based upon spiritual rather than academic agendas. More specifically, their aim is to reform the academy, and ultimately Western culture as such. By grounding research in esoteric assumptions, instead of studying esotericism from a perspective of critical neutrality, since this agenda runs counter to the very nature of the academic enterprise, the religionist countercultural study of Western esotericism was rightly rejected by academics. Since this point is often misunderstood, I would like to emphasize that it does not necessarily imply a negative judgment about religionism as such. Authors such as Jung, Eliada, and Corbin have produced a fascinating corpus of writings. They may be criticized in various respects but deserve our serious consideration, even if we do not agree with them, and even if their followers do not always manage to match the profundity of the Founding Fathers. Their sub-publications may still have much of interest to offer. And, uh, of course, Francis Yates should be amongst that, so it's not really Founding Fathers, it's Founding Persons. The point I am making may be best explained by a comparison taken from sports. Oh my god. <laughs> Voter Honograph gonna compare something to sports. I love it. That's fucking awesome. Damn, explicit rating time. Sp sports, here we go. Religionist scholars who approach the study of Western esotericism on the basis of spiritual agendas. It never is it ever gone well when an academic tries to make a sports analogy? I don't know. I just I can't wait. This is great. Um, <laughs> religionist scholars who approach the study of Western esotericism on the basis of spiritual agendas, but still wish to be accepted in the academy are like badminton players who wish to be accepted on a tennis court, but refuse to accept the rules of tennis. <laughs> oh, why not? Why not? If tennis players tell them that they should follow the rules of the game they are supposed to be playing on this particular court, the badminton players interpret this as a sign of narrow-mindedness and hostility. But of course, the tennis players are right. If you want to play tennis, you have to accept the rules of the game. If you are not prepared to do that, you should go elsewhere. This does not mean that the tennis player considers his sport to be superior to badminton. All it means is that he is there to play tennis, not badminton. I love the fact that, of course, it's, it's so, 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 t so perfect that an academic's sports analogy would be badminton and tennis. <laughs> Which are probably not the two sports that come to mind right away once you ask someone, are you into sports? <laughs> but I love it. Oh, great. Um, my point is that the, a religionist study of esotericism may be a legitimate intellectual pursuit in principle, but that the academy is based on the rules of a different game. Yes. These rules include a strict separation between faith and scholarly understanding and a continuing practice of argumentative criticism as basic to the growth of knowledge. See uh, Hanegraaff's uh, writing, The Empirical Method, if you want. 
In sum, there may well be a sunny future for countercultural religious approaches to Western esotericism. But I believe that this future lies outside the boundaries of the academy. <laughs> Obviously, this does not mean that academic scholars, scholars of Western esotericism cannot make use of whatever they happen to find valuable in religious writing, religionist writings. And we have seen that it is possible for some scholars to have a double career, participating in religionist contexts as well as in academic ones. Likewise, a scholar of religion may adopt some ideas taken from a confessional theologian, or a historian who also happens to be a Christian or a Muslim may write about his beliefs in a confessional journal. But to the extent that they wish to be accepted in the academy, students of Western esotericism will have to accept the rules, which are basic to academic enterprise, instead of trying to change them. Amen. I love the irony of saying amen, of course. Beyond the Yeats paradigm, the new approach to the study of Western esotericism, as I see it, currently taking shape, may be best defined by way of contrast with the Yeats paradigm. It does not look at Western esotericism as a quasi-autonomous counterculture, but as a neglected dimension of the general culture of the time. And it looks at the secularization and modernization of esotericism as a continuous process of creative innovation, as opposed to the modernist and unhistorical notion that secularization-modernization implies a decline of religion and magic. This means approximately the following. With respect to the period before the Enlightenment, Western esotericism can be seen as a hitherto neglected dimension of Christian culture. By studying pre-Enlightenment esotericism, we are not uncovering a counter-tradition distinct from Christianity. Rather, we are discovering that Christian culture as such is far more complex phenomenon than one might infer from traditional church histories based on simple church sect or orthodoxy heresy oppositions. Yeah, damn right. Note, this approach is equivalent to the way in which the study of Jewish mysticism since Gershom Sholem has transformed our understanding of Jewish religion as such. For Jewish mysticism as equivalent to Jewish esotericism in Sholem's work, see Dan in Quest. You can look up this paper. Uh, this is a paper everyone should read more than once, really, and, uh, and get into. It's a great guide for anyone who really wants to get an, just an understanding of, of what's going on in the world of, of esoteric research. Next. During the pivotal 18th century, it is likewise simplistic to imagine a movement of esotericists pitted against the defenders of reason. Again, the key term is historical complexity. I say, I've been saying this for forever, even before I knew these guys and worked with uh, Nicholas. And again, the study of Western esotericism challenges the simplicity of grand narratives of modernity and secular progress. Boom! Note, um, see Macintosh, um, I believe that's Christopher Macintosh, um, Perhaps there's a couple good Macintoshes. I use one in my, my opus, uh, who's a writer of mystical theology, but this may be a different one who, I, mean, I don't know. Check out Macintosh, Rose Cross, and the Age of Reason, and the important recent volume by Neugebauer Wölk, Aufklärung und Esoterik. That's something I really want to get. Aber es ist immer schrecklich zu deutsche Bücher finden in Kanada. 
And finally, from the 18th century up to the present, Western esotericism develops as a still poorly understood dimension of the emerging secular and pluralistic society of the West. And here as well, serious study of esoteric and occultist currents brings home the lesson that the relations between religion and secularization are far more complex than one might infer from old-fashioned modernist views. Beautiful. Those three points are just spot on. There's areas in which I, uh, I think uh, me and Hanegraaff would have some good talks, especially coming as I do from a theological or philosophical theology theology background and focusing on semiotics and hopefully we'll get to have those talks one day things really didn't work out well after Nicholas's death but you know trying to carry on academic study of western esotericism along these lines turns out to be anything but an out-of-the-way pursuit relevant merely to some scholars interested in the weird beliefs of outsiders, marginal currents of the lunatic fringe. On the contrary, by questioning a traditional historiography based on modernist ideologies, the study of Western esotericism has the potential of revolutionizing our understanding of Western religion and culture in general. It's super, I mean, if, if Chris Bennett's independent scholarship and Martin Starr's work on, on Frater Achad in Vancouver and uh, the scrapings of, of cannabinoids from the Jewish altars, if, if none of this doesn't prove exactly these points, then nothing does. So this is exactly the most interesting field, I think, to be engaged in outside of, say, physics and dark matter. Maybe robotics is, is a good one. I don't know. I listen mostly to scientific stuff like Lex Fridman's podcast on with scientists. That's the cool stuff, man. Uh, someone sent me these histories of the Golden Dawn podcast the other day, and I tried to listen to them, and they're just so painful because these guys don't even do their basic research. Like, how are we going to get into the interesting, complex points that are still unstudied uh, critically when, when most of the people presenting information don't even have the basics down? I don't get it. The new perspective outlined here seems to be something that is hanging in the air. It has been gathering momentum during the 90, 1990s and is reflected in a rapidly increasing number of publications coming from various disciplines. As just one example, let me quote some pertinent remarks by Moritz Basler and Hildegard Chatelier. In an interesting French-German volume on esotericism and mysticism in the decades around 1900, they begin by stating that, quote, Mystical, occultist, esoteric, and spiritualistic discourses were an important part of this cultural compost of the decades around 1900, and they played a crucial role as enzymes, at least, in what came to be the fertile soil of modernity that the academic historiography of modernity still tends to marginalize the influence of these discourses as somehow painful and inappropriate is a phenomenon that needs to be studied itself. And they continue with admirable precision. One can never sufficiently warn against the unclear impression of an unbroken historical continuity of esoteric thought into the period of modernity. In contrast, what needs to be emphasized is that we are dealing with semantic continuities that merely evoke the illusion of a grand continuity, i.e. of a tradition, whereas actually the functions of these semantics 
get completely reorganized in the context of a fundamentally changed society. Nobody will therefore try to construe a new grand narrative suggesting, for example, that essentially it has been occultism that has made modernity possible. Rather, we must emphasize the complexity of each historical fact as a point of intersection, Knotenpunkt, between endless discourses, each with their own specific constellations. He puts uh, Hanograph brackets the actual word used, which is Knotenpunkt, because uh, that it's not exactly the same as intersection or point of intersection. In other words, Basler and Chatelier reject the idea of a more or less autonomous tradition, whether called hermetic or esoteric, as well as the quasi-Yatesian narrative of esotericism as motor of modernization and progress. Instead, they emphasize the simultaneity and complex interaction of esoteric and non-esoteric discourses and the discontinuities of history linked to processes of modernization. So good. Part 5. One final comparison. I began this article by contrasting the sexual taboos <laughs> demolished in the wake of the counterculture of the 1960s and the persistence of the academic taboo on studying Western esotericism. The comparison provides me with a suitable closing metaphor. Sex may no longer be a taboo in academic discussion, but this does not mean that a professor of gender studies is expected to consider the practice of sex as part of his or her professional duty. Uh, practicing sex is one thing, while studying it is another, and neither of the two is expected to take the place of the other. Esotericism has remained a taboo in academic discussion because its countercultural religionist representatives have too frequently refused to draw such distinctions and insisted that only practitioners, people personally engaged in an esoteric quest, are able to adequately study esotericism. Accordingly, they held that the very nature of the academy needed to change in order to make the study of esotericism possible. The religionist assumption underlying such a viewpoint is that the study of Western esotericism should elucidate and explain the real nature and essence, sui generis, of esotericism, and that it falls short of its mission if it does not evoke and transmit the very experiential knowledge claimed by esotericists themselves. This is equivalent to saying that an academic study of sexual symbolism should cause the reader to experience sexual bliss. Obviously, academic research has another mission. Whether we are speaking of sex or of esotericism, those who wish to experience the real thing are well advised not to turn to academics, but to practitioners. Brilliant. But those who want to understand how and why these important domains of human experience and expression have played and are still playing a significant role in Western culture are well advised not to ask the practitioners, but turn to academics. Wouter J. Hanegraaff is a professor of history of hermetic philosophy and related currents at the University of Amsterdam, Faculty of Humanities. You can find this article on academia.edu, uh, which is useful, but unfortunately I don't think we should support it like we do, because it is essentially making money off getting us to do our work uh, without pay for free, um, whereas we could be getting paid per page read like Kindle authors do. So, uh, food for thought, folks. Have a great day. 
And you can subscribe to uh, other information at esotericebooks.com as well as find the links to the academic associations relevant to this field. Ciao for now. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.